according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Proverbs. And guess what? Chapter 16 this morning, Proverbs chapter 16, which in my Bible means I have to flip the page from page 1023 to 1024. How about that? I think we've been uh, in chapter 15 for about 100 years now, so it's good to, uh, good to move on. The plans of the heart belong to man, including the plans for how many weeks it takes to teach a chapter. Uh, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. So before we get started this morning, I want to commit our works to the Lord, including this hour, and call upon Him and His faithfulness to accomplish what He wants. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful that you are the God of peace, Father, the shelter in the time of storm. And I thank you, Father, when chaos rages all around, that, uh, Father, you're still there and you shelter us under your wings, that uh, you are the still small voice. And we just call upon your faithfulness this morning to set aside every distraction, to uh, drive all those things far from us, Father, and just fix our eyes firmly upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Bless our time in your word this morning, Father. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs 16 now, continuing on. And you probably noticed the pericope headings are pretty uh, redundant in the the New American Standard Bible anyway. I don't know if you're reading a different text, but uh, it says, contrast the upright and the wicked. That's the heading of chapter 16, and actually it's the same thing it said in chapter 15, it's the same thing it said in chapter 14, it's uh, the same thing it said in chapter 13, 12, 11, uh, 10. All right, I'm getting the point here. <laughs> um, and it continues. But really, we're in this segment, in, from 10 to 24, we're in this section that is what I've titled Personal uh, and Public Wisdom. It's different from the parental wisdom that's contained in the first nine chapters. This is personal and public. This is an adult son, an adult daughter, an adult believer that's standing in their generation as unto the Lord and living publicly their faith that, uh, that they have in the Lord. And uh, this chapter in particular gets much more uh, personal because it becomes very subjective in how we walk and how we live. And it really discusses the uh, the intimacy that we have with the Lord, that we don't have a we don't have a uh, schizophrenic approach. That well, you know, my Christian walk is one walk, and then my daily life is another life, and and we tend to think that they're separate things. They're not separate things. It's one and all the same in uh, in all that we do at work, at home, uh, in public, in private. Everything is all the Lord, and so uh, that'll become hopefully very clear here in uh, in this chapter. We're going to take the first nine verses as a unit. There are 33 chapters in the or verses in the chapter, but we're going to take the uh, the first nine verses as a poetic unit, and I think uh, it's structured that way uh, very well. So to outline then, point one, chapter 16 continues the trend from chapter 15, 
with far fewer antithetical parallelisms. And this was a trend we saw a chapter ago. It was really um, chapter 15 stood out as being different from all the the 14 previous chapters because there were far few buts where you have an A, but B part of the poetry. And while I say that, it's (laughs) excluding the first two verses of the chapter. There are two in verse 1 and verse 2 you have these buts. Um, but uh, they're far fewer for the rest of the chapter, called antithetical parallelism. If you might recall, there's synthetic, there's uh, or synonymous, and antithetical, and then um, now I'm forgetting the third term. Uh, we're going to see those more commonly in this chapter, where you have ands instead of buts, or you have evens, or assuredly, you have intensification uh, in the two parts of the verse, and so. You'll see what I'm talking about here, like verse 3, for example. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. So that in that verse you have the A part and the B part still, but they're not a contrast. They're not antithetical. We're not saying on the one hand this, but on the other hand that. Okay, And, and really, um, other than verses 1 and 2, there's not a ton of that, uh, the antithetical parallelism in, in this chapter. Beyond that, verses 1 through 9 portray the human divine tandem operations of God's wisdom in our life. Verses 1 through 9 portray the human slash divine. You're going to see this phrase a lot. I'm going to use it uh, frequently in the coming lessons, in the coming verses. The human slash divine tandem operations of God's wisdom in our life. And I'll explain it so we can relax. <laughs> but I understand. Um, anybody here ever skydived? Anyone? No? Oh, come on. I was going to guess Sandy. If, if anyone in this room, I was going to guess Sandy. But I, okay. Um, the, uh, the idea of a tandem dive is you're not doing it by yourself, that you're, you're jumping out of a perfectly good airplane, but you're doing so with an instructor, with a coach, a teacher, a trainer. And, and so you're tied in tandem. And so then the, the parachute is designed to, to slow, you know, most parachutes couldn't carry the weight of two people, but these specially designed tandem jump operations can do that. And in this chapter, and in other chapters of Scripture, but particularly here, there really is a focus for how God is at work in our lives. And God's working, and we're working, and we're working in tandem, or we should be, uh, we should be attuned to His Word as it, uh, as it reaches our ears. We should be in tune with His will as we're pondering uh, the things that we, that we say and do. And, uh, and we're His fellow workers and we're working with Him and He's working with us. Actually, He's working in and through us of His good pleasure. And so this is, uh, I'm, I'm giving it the title here, The Human Divine Tandem Operations of God's Wisdom in Our Life. And uh, I'm going to keep using that. I might adjust it a little bit as, as maybe other classes unfold and we come to maybe uh, we'll find other expressions uh, are, are more communicative. But for now, this is what we're going to go with. That means that uh, God and I are, are, are fellow workers. We're working together in this Christian walk. I'm not alone in this Christian walk. And uh, you'll see what I'm talking about here. And so uh, it starts with the bookends, which help us poetically define. These are the the markers in the text that help us to identify the poetry. Uh, Proverbs 16.1 and Proverbs 16.9 bookend the section with a tandem of Adam and Yahweh. Those are the expressions. Adam, where we get the name Adam, the, the, the name of the first man and the name for man, mankind in general. 
We have Adam in verse 1 and again in verse 9 along with Yahweh. This is the Lord. This is the personal name for the Lord. Y-H-W-H is uh, sometimes translated as Jehovah or Yahweh depending on how you want to point the vowels. But you'll notice in verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to Adam. The plans of the heart, uh, Adam, to Adam. But the answer of the tongue May Yahweh from the Lord. And that's the tandem there. When we get into verse 9, the mind of Adam, the mind of man, plans his way. And then, uh, but Yahweh is the one who directs his steps. So this is what we're looking at from verse 1 to verse 9. And then the verses in between uh, fill in the sandwich, if you will. Uh, sometimes they're called bookends, sometimes they're called uh, bread slices. Uh, depending on a top slice of bread, a bottom slice of bread, and then all the meat is in the middle and to make a good sandwich, uh, that's what you end up with. And so, or bookends if you prefer those. Uh, but the, the verses in the middle then also, each one of these is in the context of, of us and the Lord, of, of the Lord working in and through us and the, and the aspects there. So we'll see that. Again, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Uh, and this prompts a lot of, um, uh, you know, man proposes, but God disposes, I think, is a fairly common uh, axiom that, that people like to use coming from this proverb, uh, that we may, we may intend one thing, but God overrules, and this is what He does, and God accomplishes His good pleasure, and that's true. God will sometimes, fr- uh, frequently, overrule what we intend, because uh, what we intend is not in line with His will. And, and so he, he doesn't coerce our volition, notice. Uh, we still intend to do what we intend to do. And sometimes we even accomplish what we intend to do. But then uh, God in His marvelous grace has a way to, uh, to adjust the outcome of what we intended so that what comes out isn't necessarily what we wanted to come out. Or maybe some of the words we wanted to speak weren't the words we thought we were going to speak. And then uh, we, we, we observe God's grace in action when through a sovereign uh, slip of the tongue, uh, his uh, his truth edifies his children in spite of in spite of us. So I find that uh, curious as well. Some uh, principles I think that go well with this, of course, God is at work both in the thinking and the doing. We have a marvelous, omniscient God who knows every word we're going to speak before we speak it. He knows every thought we're going to think before we think it. He even knows the, uh, the intents, the attitudes that shape the intentions before they even become coherent thoughts. The attitudes behind the intentions, behind the thinking, behind the speaking, behind the doing. And God is sovereignly aware. His omniscience knows every last bit of that. God is at work both in the thinking and the doing. And we had this not long ago in Philippians, Philippians 2.13. One of my favorite verses. As it says in verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So you're a believer. How are you going to live? How are you going to express that salvation status in your daily walk? For it is God who is at work in you. God's busy working internally within each believer, both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. 
So that includes thinking and doing, and God's at work in the thinking and the doing. Now, He doesn't coerce our thinking, so how does He operate? He operates through His Word. He operates through the convictions that come as we study to show ourselves approved, as we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's where He does the work in our thinking, to will and to do of His good pleasure. He shapes our thinking through His Word. Now some people don't like this, some people think it's, it's wrong, but I think it's perfectly biblically consistent with a God who designed volitional capacity and who honors volitional capacity. He does not, he's not a puppet master making us choose the things But He is sovereign in, in how He shapes our thinking and how He puts before us the Word of God that does its work in you who believe. And so I think this is, uh, this is perfectly compatible with the whole tenor of Scripture. He shapes our thinking through His Word. And we had this. We had this very early in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 2, uh, just to cite one example, there are, there are a number of places where this concept comes forth. But back in Proverbs chapter 2, in verses 10 and 11, there's a, there's a benefit to having the Word of God inside of you. It says, um, Proverbs 2.10, wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. There's a benefit to taking it in internally, to receiving the word implanted. That means you're not just learning academically, but you're embracing it. Your, your uh, human spirit is, is apprehending that which God is uh, communicating. So wisdom will enter your heart, the core of your being. And knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. Notice this? The Word of God becomes an active agent inside of you. It does things once you get it there. Now if you don't ever put it there, what's it going to (laughs) do? If you never take it in, if you never with humility receive the Word implanted, what's it going to do? See? But when you take it in and when you let it dwell richly, it does all kinds of things. It's faithful. Yeah, so discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. And how does it deliver you? Because it's molding your thinking. It's shaping your attitude. It's orienting your, your intentions. Remember the Word of God is sharp and, and dividing uh, to the soul and spirit of joints and marrow is a critical judge of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. These things are, uh, are significant. So to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the way of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil. All these things that the Word of God does if you let it, if you let it, if you take it in and let it dwell richly, this is what it's going to do. So he shapes our thinking through his word. Romans 12, which I reference a lot. Romans 12. It's kind of fun to, uh, you can do this on your computer, you can search Windows uh, and search your documents folder and search for Romans 12 and see how many documents come back uh, that have Romans 12 in your, uh, uh, in your Word files, Microsoft Word documents. Romans 12, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, 
acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is a critical verse that that addresses what I was talking about earlier in the fact that our Christian walk is not a separate walk from our secular walk, from our temporal walk, from our our career, our daily walk, our family life, our business life, or any other such thing. Our life is, is the Lord. And that includes every other kind of life we want to talk about. Okay? Work life, family life, business life, political life, sex life, family life, I mean anything. It's the Lord. Okay? And don't separate them. Don't try to have a schizophrenic approach. And do not be conformed to this world or this age but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now that verse gives you no third option. It's either or. If you fail to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then that first prohibition is inevitable. You will be conformed to this world. And if you think about it, you see it every day. You you see every believer you know that's not living in the Word of God, that's not being renewed. How worldly do they become and how quickly do they become worldly? They're just like unbelievers in their worldview, in their outlook, in their attitudes. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove or demonstrate the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He shapes our thinking through His Word. Ephesians 4.23 goes with this as well. So um, there's the way we used to walk as unbelievers and uh, and you can see that in verses uh, 17 through 19 well we have no part of that anymore and verse 20 says you did not learn christ this way if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in jesus and i love that expression learn christ ephesians 4 20 you did not learn christ That's a different application than receive Christ, right? We're not talking about getting saved anymore at this point. When you receive Christ, you're born again, you have eternal life, and you're not going to go to hell when you die. So hooray for that. But then after you receive Christ, what do you need to do? You need to learn Christ. Now you need to learn Christ. You need to start learning and having your mind renewed. Learn Christ. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him as truth is in Jesus. And so we start learning. We start living in the truth. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is, notice, it still exists. It's still a thing, even though you're saved. That's why we have to learn Christ and lay it aside. In reference to your former manner of life, you Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. That's, that's a present ongoing activity. It continues to be corrupted. It will never stop being corrupted. That sin nature will keep being corrupted until the, the day it goes into the ground, until it, it perishes with, with this mortal body. It continues to be corrupted. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind same concept we had in Romans 12 too. So that you can put on the new self. So take up the new self. Put it on. See? This is very different from getting saved. This is now living like a saved one. 
And you must cast aside the old man, confess your sins, be restored to fellowship, put on the new man every time. Every time you confess, every time you choose which man you want to wear, which coat do you want to wear. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then it gives some practical applications in the verses that follow, centering on our sin or um, walk of godliness. But that expression, the renewing of your mind, is there in verse 23. He shapes our thinking through His Word. And that's, uh, that's the blessing. And then He also freely shows Himself in our words and in our deeds. He also freely shows Himself in our words and in our deeds. That's back to Proverbs 16 again, 16.1 and 16.9. He freely shows Himself in our words and in our deeds. The plans of the heart belong to man, but, and you know, could we render this as an and instead of a but? I think we can. If it is a but, it's not a very strong but. Um, We could view it as an even or an and. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. You know, both are true. If... um, if you're making heart plans contrary to the Word of God, in other words, you're in sin, you're in carnality, and so you're using your human creativity to invent some kind of evil, well then, um, God can still overrule that and actually speak truth in spite of yourself. That the Word that comes out will oftentimes be quite convicting in, uh, in ways that only you get. Because it wasn't the Word you intended, but it's the Word that came out. And you think, hmm, how did that happen? <laughs> and then it gets your attention. Um, but it doesn't have to be adversarial. You can read this verse in a very positive way where the plans of the heart belong to man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Remember with many of these, if not all, many of these uh, passages we take the A part and the B part and we can do the crisscross. And so we can apply Yahweh to the first heart, uh, part and uh, Adam, Adam to the second part and have the the complete application there on on both the A part and B part of the verse. We could read this because God's at work in our plans even while we plan, and God's at work in our words even when we speak. So uh, so both both halves of this verse are true. And what happens then when my mind is in tune with the Word of God, and I'm meditating upon His truth, and then I say something, uh, a word of encouragement, and uh, is that because I know what I'm saying? <laughs> is that because, um, or is it because I'm in fellowship and God uses me as His as His tool? Remember, if you cleanse yourself from these things, then you're useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. And so you can come alongside somebody and, in complete ignorance, without any uh, awareness of what's going on in their life, and you have a word of encouragement for them, and you walk away and you have no idea that the words you just gave them are exactly what they needed to hear. Because you had no idea that this other thing was going on in in the background and and had no idea that something else had coincided with that. And so this is what we talk about. He freely shows himself in our words. Uh, Sometimes it happens when we're evangelizers. Sometimes it happens when we find ourselves speaking in in ways that we don't normally speak. (laughs) Say, wow, I'm normally a shy person. I don't normally speak out like that. But for whatever reason... 
at this time, at this place. I don't know what came over me, but uh, somebody said something and then next thing I knew, man, I gushed forth six Bible verses and, and where did that come from? I didn't intend to say any of that. <laughs> well, the Lord's at work. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And so when it happens, just, uh, you know, thank Him for it, go home and pray and say, thank you, Lord. I'm, that wasn't not really my normal routine, but you clearly had a, a purpose that you were doing, right? Does that make sense? And then not only our words, but also our deeds. In verse 9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And so it may be uh, in our behavior, in our outcome, and in, in the things that we accomplish, or even just the course of our life that uh, we, we had intended that it was going to go one direction and God takes it in an entirely different direction. Um, and this too um, does not have to be the strong uh, adversarial but. It doesn't have to be antithetical. We could also be an and. The, the mind of man plans his way and the Lord directs his steps because if your mind is, is in harmony with the mind of Christ and the plans you're making uh, would then be you know, shaped by the Lord. That's nothing wrong with that. And then the Lord can direct your steps. That's, uh, that too is a truth. So all of these I think are marvelous. I think all of these principles help us. Um, it shows that tandem that's at work, that I'm not alone in this Christian walk, that God, especially as a church age believer, that Christ is in me, the hope of glory, that the life that I now live, I live by faith. And that it's not just me thinking these things, saying these things, doing these things, but I am in fact uh, working, uh, that the Lord is working in me. And I, He's working in me, I'm working in Him, and, and this is how it works. So, He freely shows Himself in this way. And that's a good thing. Now, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. So the things you're planning and the things you're saying and the things you're doing, make sure you're clean. (laughs) Make sure you're in fellowship. Make sure that you're not uh, trying to achieve something in the flesh, uh, that you're not lying to yourself about the reasons why you're doing what you're doing. And if, uh, if you've examined yourself and if you've confessed all your known sins, uh, you might have missed something. Okay? So, Examine yourself and then ask Him to examine you as well on top of what you're examining. And uh, that makes all the difference in the world. This is point C. Self-reflection is often insufficient. Self-reflection is often insufficient. Because, let's face it, we get good at lying to ourselves. We get good at convincing ourselves that it's not so bad or we're okay or, well, you know, um, and we learn to overlook certain things that ought not be overlooked. Because we, what does it say? Alternatively accusing or excusing. That's just the nature of, of, of the beast, of the sin nature. Self-reflection is often insufficient. It is much better to call on the Lord to do the searching. And so when we talk about 1 John 1, 9, and again, that's part of the issue there. Uh, if we confess our sins, well, You've got to know what those sins are, right? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It may be that we're unaware of additional sins beyond the ones that we're aware of. And so we've got a a tremendous provision in in terms of our, uh, as as church-age believer priests, in terms of our confession mechanism. 
We've got a tremendous provision whereby the cleansing can happen in grace beyond uh, the, the ones that we remember, the ones that we think about, the ones that we know about. Um, and in, in honest forgetfulness, and honest uh, because we are truly repentant, we are truly confessing, we truly want to walk in the light at that point. But if we're deceiving ourselves, if we're living in denial, if, we, uh, if we've convinced ourselves that other sins are, are not really all that bad, that they're okay, that God excuses them, and, and whatever, then I would put forth that our true confession is not a confession that we might be making an admission, we might be voicing certain things out loud, but we're still regarding iniquity in our heart. And we're still, we're not homologeo, in other words, we're not in agreement with God and God's statement with respect to our sin. And so uh, I think that comes out as well. Uh, Proverbs 16.2 is going to come back again in chapter 21 where it gets restated. Almost word for word. Um, yeah, not quite. In verse 1 it's a single man in all his ways. In, in, in 21 it's every man in his overall way. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Okay? So just because you're okay with it, just because you think it's good and right and perfect doesn't mean it's the good and the right and perfect will of God. You need to make sure that you're evaluating through God's viewpoint uh, in the will of God as to what it is He would have for you to do. Otherwise, um, we're just doing our own thing and calling upon Him to bless it. I like how the Proverbs 21 actually starts with verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. So that's a good thing, right? Don't you want to be in God's hands? Don't you want to be used by Him? Don't you want to be serving with Him? Well, if you keep yourself in His hands, of course. But how dangerous is water if it's not channeled properly? How dangerous is water if it's turned to the wrong direction, if it overruns its banks, if it floods, as uh, we've seen here lately? Anyway, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So Self-reflection may not be sufficient. Self-reflection, I'm okay with it, let's do this. And then uh, like David wanted to build a temple. But then he gets the message that night saying, oh stop, 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 it's not my will. Your son's going to build that, not you. So don't trust uh, the self-reflection. Proverbs 30 in verse 12. There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. There is a kind, oh how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. There is a kind (laughs) whose teeth are like swords. All right, well this is a a fun proverb, but the one we're focused on is verse 12. Self-reflection may be insufficient and it may be just misapplied because, I mean, how much self-reflection is this guy doing? It seems like he's convinced that he's great and uh, no need to second guess that. Pure in his own eyes. Luke 18, remember this? Jesus taught this parable. And uh, the self-reflection of the Pharisee was polar opposite. Because he thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. right? He thought this guy was the greatest believer God had ever smiled at. 
And uh, he's, he's praying in his prayer life, telling God how, how great he is. Not how great God is, how great the Pharisee is. So um, Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That right there tells you the whole story. <laughs> because when you're viewing others with contempt, uh, just quit trusting yourself that you're righteous. There's, uh, there's pride at work here and the rest of this is going get, to gonna get bad. All right. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So, I mean, what a prayer. God, not how great thou art, but how great I am. Thank you, God, for making me so awesome. I thank you that I am better than all these other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Aren't I great? So clearly, self-reflection is insufficient. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Here's real reflection. Here's a believer that knows that, you know, I'm a, I'm a vile sinner worthy of a lake of fire. But by the grace of God, Jesus Christ accepted my guilt, and, and I get his righteousness. And so there's no boasting, there's no pride, there's no anything other than a day-by-day recognition that, that uh, I am an, uh, what did Spurgeon say? I'm a, was it Spurgeon? Or, or, um, no, it was, it was Newton, that I am a great sinner but my God is a great Savior. Statement along those lines. So God be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. Experiential justification in our daily walk, in our prayer life. And the tax collector was the one that was justified. The Pharisee was not. The Pharisee was still carnal, just as carnal and walking out of the temple as he was walking into the temple. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So self-reflection is often insufficient. If we're going to walk this tandem, if my Christian walk is going to be a tandem with the Lord, uh, I want to be in fellowship, I need to be in fellowship, and in that process of examining myself to, uh, to be cleansed, I don't want to just limit my self-examination to what I'm looking at. I'm going to ask Him to search me. I'm going to do so in my prayers. I'm going to do so in this constant fellowship that I have with the Lord. It is much better to call on the Lord to do the searching. And my favorite for this is Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Which is, uh, these two verses are marvelous in their own context. Twenty-three and twenty-four, and uh, not only are they marvelous in their own context, just for their own sake by themselves, but coming as they come on the heels of uh, of uh, nineteen through twenty-two is uh, is extraordinary as well. Because uh, this is kind of a buzzword issue in our day and age, with all the attention focused on 
hate and hate crimes and whatever and and all the the non-biblical uh, proverbs of you know hate the sin but love the sinner kind of thing. Uh, this says, no, I hate the sinner. I hate those people. As, uh, as it says here, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. It doesn't say I hate their sin, but I love them. It says I hate them in, in the, the sanctified love of Jesus Christ. Anyway, then that feeds into search me, O heart, and uh, search me, O God, and know my heart. Okay? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. This comes to the intents, the thoughts and intents of the heart. This goes to the attitude. The anxious thoughts uh, speak to the attitude before the thoughts become um, cohesive thoughts and a plan of action and, and all the rest. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So it's much better to call on the Lord to do the searching. Ask Him to expose it. Ask Him to bring it to our attention. Ask Him to open our eyes. Remember, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will also reveal that to you. That's a promise. He's, he's, uh, he's promised to do that. And so uh, we have the issue here. And, and I've, you know, I've done this many, many times, probably too many times to count but the, the process of confession as you're talking to the Lord, as you're confessing, as you're being restored to fellowship, saying, Lord, uh, I believe I'm in fellowship. I don't have any unconfessed sin that I'm aware of, but there just seems to be, a, there seems to be an oppression. There seems to be a spirit of, of uh, discouragement at work, and I don't know why. Is, is there a sin I'm forgetting? Is there something I don't, you know? And then, oh, okay, wait a minute. All right. Thank you, Lord. I, yes, I had forgotten that. that yes. I'm, I'm carnal, Lord, let me confess that as well. And it's amazing how faithful He is when you're applying His Word and asking Him to bring to your attention. Just, there it is, there it is. The Holy Spirit's the best reminder in the universe because uh, He's omniscient and he, uh, he lives inside of you. And when you ask Him to remind you, because that's He's called the reminder, when you, when you ask Him to remind you, there it is, there it is. Alright. So we have the, uh, the benefits of being restored to uh, to fellowship here. Jeremiah 17 verses 9 and 10. And the reason why self-reflection usually gets sabotaged is because we have that no good thing dwelling within us and that no good thing that poisons our heart. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's, uh, that's, that's fallen man in Adam. Here we are. But look what comes after verse 9. I, the Lord, search the heart. That wicked thing. That wicked thing that, that trips us up. That wicked thing that lies to us. That wicked thing that hinders our own self-reflection. And, and I wonder, you know, if sometimes when we're reflecting and then that wickedness is there, we don't want to look at it. That wickedness is there and it's you know, it's easier to pretend I don't see it than to have to clean it up, see. And so, I didn't see that. Oh, I didn't see that. Okay. Well, God says, let me just point this out to you here. <laughs> let me just see, because I see it. Nothing's hidden from me. This is, a, this is a thing of darkness, and I don't want to be looking at this, because I put this on my son, on the cross. You need to confess this. And uh, so I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, 
according to the results of his deeds. That's why you have to catch it at the attitudinal stage. It just makes it worse. The longer you dwell on it, the longer you let it go unconfessed, then the attitudes are going to become mental attitude sins. And then the thinking is going to be a sin. And then then the speaking is going to be a sin. And then the actions are going to be a sin. And all of that just gets compounded as as it progresses. So catch it at the attitude stage and you can stop it and uh, mitigate the consequences. You can limit the damage that's done. As a partridge that hatches eggs when it has, which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune but unjustly. In the midst of his days it will forsake him and in the end he will be a fool. Anyway, that's the conclusion of that paragraph there. So God's at work. Stay in fellowship. Let him uh, be the one that searches you to make sure you're staying in fellowship. And this tandem can proceed. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Proverbs 16.3 Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. And so um, you're in fellowship, you're ready to proceed in your daily walk, ready to be a, uh, in the, a tandem worker with God, whatever He has on His agenda for today. And uh, recognize that, wait a minute, it's his calendar, not your calendar. It's his agenda, not your agenda. It's like um, if you ever use, uh, do you use the Google calendar for your, uh, I don't care if you do or not, I'm just asking. The, the, uh, the blessings are though, because I have mine and Sharon has hers, Grandpa has his, and they all are displayed together on the same, on the same monthly calendar. All right, and then and then you start looking at it, thinking, "Ooh, this cancels that, or this crosses that, or that interferes with that, or these things are are not meshing very well." See, and so then you can use the check mark on the on the left if you want, and just deselect your wife's calendar, pretend you can't see it. And, no, I'm teasing. You do, <laughs> okay? But yeah, you can select and deselect and look at individual calendars if you want or look at all of them combined. And I also have a church calendar. I've got an Austin Bible church calendar, so there's four that I have all displayed and they all get their own color in, in that. What this verse is saying, you've got a calendar and the Lord's got a calendar. Guess which one you better be following. <laughs> all right? So uh, it's uh, commit your works to the Lord. Say, wait a minute, are these really my works? Or was I saved unto good works prepared beforehand that I should walk in them? Is this, uh, is this uh, should I be following his to-do list, his task list, his, his plan and program? Obviously that's what we're supposed to do. So uh, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Uh, pretend you don't see what he's doing and do your own thing. And uh, what do you think the outcome of that's going to be? How, where is the success going to come in that? Okay. And this is where I think a lot of people have the wrong order on their prayers for God's blessing. They ask in prayer for God to bless what they're doing. And that's, that's upside down. And instead, we should be doing what God's blessing. See the difference? So don't ask Him to bless what you're doing. Do what He's blessing. And, makes all, and then you don't have to ask Him to bless it because He's blessing it. So do that. And the, uh, the issue becomes clear. All right. So commit your works to the Lord. What does that mean to commit my works to the Lord? Well, really, this is the essence of the whole paragraph. Committing our actions to the Lord is the blessing of embracing the human divine tandem. 
committing our actions to the Lord as the blessing of embracing the human divine tandem. So we embrace it. We accept it. We, um, we realize that this is what it is. It's uh, the life that I live. It's not me anymore. The life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's Christ who lives in me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is, if, if, if there's an earthly analogy for this, it's, it would be marriage. It would be the, the uh, design that God has put two into one. That God has brought uh, the man and the woman together, the two become one, right? For this reason a man shall leave father and mother, shall cleave to one another, and the two shall become one flesh. And so um, you, you learn very quickly in the process of marriage, hopefully you learn it in counseling leading up to marriage, that it's different when there's two of you. And that uh, you've, got a, you've got one walk together as heirs together of the grace of life, but there's two of you that, that may have differences in, in thinking and priorities and desires and intentions and, and everything else. And so there's two of you and that's where you know, conflict arises and you've got to decide in your marriage how, uh, how those things get, uh, get worked out. And uh, sometimes you can do both and sometimes you can't do both. And sometimes you, know, you prefer it but you defer. And that's the, that's the, the application there. Um, and that's just with another human being okay, who's not perfect, who's not God, and so uh, sometimes uh, you know they're wrong, and you've got to find a way in grace to show them when they're wrong. Sometimes you're wrong, and they've got to find a way in grace to show you you're wrong. Um, but with the Lord, of course, He's never wrong, and that's the that's the thing where if there's a conflict there, then uh, then we have our Gethsemane moment, as Jesus did, not my will, but Thine be done, and we have to stop and say, "All right, Lord, this is what we're doing," and uh, that's uh, the blessing on that. All right. So this is what it means to commit our actions to the Lord. This is what it means when you say, if the Lord wills. When you say, today, in the will of God, if He permits, this is what I want to achieve. This is what He wants to achieve. And, uh, and then you're freely letting Him overrule if in fact uh, our perspective needs some fine-tuning. If in fact uh, our eyes get open to some things we didn't know before the blessing of embracing the human divine tandem. Um, comes back again in Psalm 22, or not Proverbs, Psalm 22.8. I misread that. Psalm 22.8. And, and really, this is uh, Jesus on the cross and how insulting and how twisted and how uh, painful this must have been for our Savior to hear this, to hear them shout this at him in unbelief, in scorn, how ugly. And yet in the ugliness is the truth, is, is the truth of, of this commitment. Psalm 22, and David wrote this a thousand years before Jesus. And uh, I, I don't know, if, I mean if I was an unbeliever, if I was an atheist, how would I read this chapter and not just be you know, struck by how accurate this is a thousand years ahead of time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. He quoted this. He quoted this word for word on the cross. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. 
He voices his lament, and he's not blaming God for being too slow, for not answering. He says, you are holy. If you're not answering, then your holiness is delaying the the answer, and that's fine. You who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, you're still in charge. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. It's a good reminder. God's faithful. He's always been faithful. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. That's a promise too. The one who trusts in God will never be disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of man and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, now here's the mockers. And we know when Christ is crucified, of course, it was the scribes and the Pharisees and the crowd and the Romans and, and all the rest. And here they are wagging the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. What an insult. <laughs> you know, what do you think he's doing on the cross? But committing himself to the Father, offering himself to the Father as the substitute, offering himself to the Father as the sinless Lamb of God, and uh, committing with such a faith and such a trust that when the Father finishes pouring out his wrath that the Father will be satisfied, that the demands of righteousness and justice will be met so that the provision of grace and mercy can pour forth to this fallen world. He is committed to the Lord. You know, I mean, you thought Job's friends were accusatory, saying, well, Job, if you were just right with God, he was right with God. It was all undeserved suffering. Now multiply that times infinity and you get Christ on the cross. And you get all these religious, uh, you know, scornful Pharisees, probably just back from the temple telling God how great they were. And then they get to the cross and they start wagging the, the fingers of Jesus saying, commit yourself to the Lord. How insulting. Let him deliver him. See, just turn to the Lord. He'll rescue you from this cross. Not even understanding that he is committed to the Lord and it's the will of the Father for him to be on that cross. Let him rescue him if or because he delights in him. If he really loved you, he'll get you off that cross. If he really loved you, You see what the insult here? This is also an insult. He must not love you then. Oh really? You're the beloved son? You're the beloved son that he delights in? Really? Yeah, three times the father said that when the the voice came out of heaven. Behold my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So if you really are the one that his soul takes delight in, why are you up on that cross? You should come down from there. He'll rescue you from there if he really loved you. How insulting. And he's listening to all these things. And then he stops and he says, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son was birthed in, uh, to the virgin in the humility of the, of the manger. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. He's been walking the Christian walk since birth. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. And so here they are telling them, commit yourself to the Lord. He's been doing that since conception. Since conception when God the Son did the kenosis procedure and emptied himself of his divine attributes. And for nine months, you know, what was the baby doing in the womb? 
All right. Now, this passage said he was in fellowship with his father. And that's uh, a curious thing. All right. So uh, this is what it means to embrace the human divine tandem. And that's what we get to do. Jesus is the pattern for us, but we do the same thing. We commit ourselves to the Lord. Lord, I'm yours. Here I am. Send me. Here I am. I'm yours. And uh, we present ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. Here I am, Lord. I'm yours. And this is the, uh, the embrace of this, committing our actions to the Lord. Over to Psalm 37. Another illustration. Psalm 37, another Davidic psalm. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Notice it's not a prosperity gospel, name it and claim it theology. If you're living in the Word of God and your heart is being molded and your thinking is being shaped, then uh, the desires of your heart, guess what? Those aren't going to be the carnal lusts that uh, the, uh, <laughs> the other crowd wants it to be. You know, They think that, well, I can just get anything I want to get. You know, Well, no. What you want to get at the moment, these things you're drooling over are just the carnal things that you're craving and lusting after and, and really you're coveting, which is breaking one of the commandments. And, and no, you've got to be in the Word of God. Commit your way to Him. And notice how those desires then are shaped and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. He will do it. So the uh, you're saved by faith, you walk by faith, all of this is the the privilege. And it's true in every dispensation. It becomes extra true in the church age, as we'll see here next. This has been true in every human dispensation. From the Gentiles to the Jews to the church, it will continue to be true in the tribulation, in the millennium. It will continue to be true that believers are going to walk in a tandem with God. With God who's, who's at work in and through them to will and to do of His good pleasure. But it's most particularly true in the body of Christ. All right. Uh, some of the early examples include Psalm 119 and the ones we've already seen for that matter. In, uh, the ones we've already seen include Israel's dispensation. But look at Psalm 119 and notice how this is normative. The opening paragraph uh, establishes the, the uh, truth that's then reflected in every strophe of this psalm. How blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. And so we have a blameless believer, somebody that's, uh, that's born again by faith in, in, uh, in Christ. And now we have a walk. What's our walk going to be like? Well, it's going to be with the Lord. It's going to be shaped by doctrine. It's going to be in fellowship with God. How blessed are those who observe His testimonies, who seek Him with all their heart. So it's not just academic. It's not just studying the truth, learning verses, learning facts and information, accumulating gnosis. Yes, you observe His testimonies, but you're also seeking Him. Right? Seeking Him. How many of the Pharisees were geniuses in Bible information, but they didn't know Jesus? 
It says you search the Scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, but it is the Scriptures that speak of me. And they didn't know Him. They didn't know Jesus. Who seek Him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in His ways. So His ways, not my ways, His ways. The life that I live is no longer me, but Christ who lives in me, we say in the New Testament and the church age. But walking in His ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. This is when your ways become my ways. Think how powerful this is because normally, right, as as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than my ways, your thoughts higher than my thoughts. Typically God's ways are so far beyond anything we can dream of, there's just no, uh, no comparison until... His ways become our ways until He is shaping our thinking in His Word and now His ways are our ways because we're walking together. We're we're walking this Christian walk together. The born again walk of believers that are walking humbly with our God. What does our God require of you? To walk humbly with our God. Okay? All right, Man, I've got two minutes, almost done. The um, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. So now that strophe, that's just the first. There's, there's uh, you know, the whole Hebrew alphabet gets represented in this. 176 verses. I think that's uh, 22 times 8. The, um, the whole psalm here is a believer that's in love with the Word of God. This is a believer that occupies with the Word of God daily. He, uh, day and night he meditates. He's, he's eating, drinking, sleeping. Everything is the Word of God and his fellowship with the Lord, walking with the Lord. And it becomes a pattern for all of us. So it's been true in every human dis- dispensation. We have the blessing of embracing that tandem. We have that embracing, uh, that, that blessing to embrace it. To not live like we're still doing our own thing, okay? How harmful is it for a marriage when one of the two marriage partners uh, forgets that they're a marriage partner and just does their own thing and just, uh, you know, never thinks of the other person, never thinks about what they want, never thinks about, you know, they're just living their own life like they used to do as a single person. That's pretty harmful, pretty destructive, see? Well take it out of marriage and put it now in the, in, in the application with the Lord. Um, we're with Him. And we need, to be, we need to be embracing that tandem, the human divine tandem of God's wisdom at work in our life. Alright, well this is where we'll pick it up next week with, with, uh, with this slide. I'll even make myself a, a little mark so I don't forget. And uh, we'll carry on. This is a pretty good jump I think on verses nine, 1 through 10 or 1 through 9. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this study. Thank you for the book of Proverbs. And I pray that we would consider these blessings and that we would ask ourselves how much we embrace of this tandem and how much we resist this tandem. Um, And then open our eyes to see the blessings that it is to completely embrace this tandem and to be walking with you. That it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So thank you, Father. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.